All right, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to jump right in. Father, um, how thankful uh, we are for your word, and how beautiful it is, and how timely it is always. Father, um, in a world that is uh, in turmoil, and that makes us feel uneasy and hard to understand, and it seems like the storm clouds are coming in. And then we read passages like chapters 8 through 10, and we realize, Lord, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and that you hold all things in your hands. And Father, thank you for that. Thank you that you remind us of that. Thank you that your eye is on the sparrow. And we know that you are watching over us. And we give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Well, where have we been? Last week, Rebecca gave us this wonderful teaching. And in it, one of the things that she reminded us was that God will reveal himself as he is. And sometimes we don't like what we see. Sometimes it's really hard, some of the things we see about God. But God will define himself because he will tell us who he is. And that is a wonderful thing to remember. But then there was chapter 7. And I love chapter 7. I, I, I loved it. I think it's a beautiful chapter. It's a, it's a chapter of hope. Because there we had repentance and we had prayer. We had faith. We had worship. We had God's power going out fighting for his people. We had victory and we had peace. And this is where we want to have an Ebenezer, a place of remembrance. We want a place like this so that we can return to it in our hearts. We want to remember times like that because beautiful things happen there, because hearts turn back to God, because God watched over his people, because God led his people. And we like remembering that. But you see, that wasn't forever. It was for a time. It was a reminder. It is for us to return to and remember. But it was only a respite on the journey. And now we have this monumental transition that is about to take place. And the implications that are about to happen are immense. We have Samuel, and Samuel has been a giant of man in the life of Israel. We remember, don't we? We remember his amazing praying, faithful mother. We remember her tears. We remember her prayer before the Lord. We remember that he answered that prayer, and we have this amazing birth. And and then we see Samuel's dedication from the earliest of his days and his amazing faithfulness. We saw that Samuel, as he... matured, was entrusted with three different offices before the Lord. He was judge, and he was priest, and he was prophet. And they were all tied up in this one faithful man, year after year, speaking God's words to the people and calling them to trust God and to walk in obedience. And he always was faithfully following the Lord. And yet this week, we found out that Samuel, we knew it, but we find out that he was indeed a man. He was a man who was growing old, and God will call him home soon. His work will be finished. I don't know. Perhaps that is what he was thinking when he made his sons judges over Israel. You see, judges had always been raised up by the Lord when the time was right. 
Heredity had rarely played a part in being a judge. God would just raise up his man. And it leaves us with questions because Samuel's boys are not like their father. They are scoundrels just like Eli's boys. And I don't know about you, but I want to know, why did Samuel do that? Why did he do it? It doesn't make sense. It seems completely out of character. And we're not told. What we are told is that somehow this plays a part in the elders coming and to, to see Saul and demanding, yes, that's what they did, they demanded that he give them a king. And here's what they do when they state their case. They essentially say, Samuel, you're old and your sons are evil. Not evil, but they're not trustworthy. They're bad. And we want a king. But let's face it, even though those things are true, that's not the heart of what they were demanding. What they were demanding is this. They wanted someone to be raised up. They wanted something different. When they asked for a king to rule over them, what they were doing is they were asking for something that would replace what God had always done. God had always raised up the leaders, not only the judges, but he had always raised up the leaders. Remember, he called Abram out of Ur. Ur was a pagan nation, and he called him out, and he said, I'm going to give you as father of my people, and you will be a blessing to many nations. And if you remember, he raised him up at just the right time. And then, and then after that, there was, there was Isaac and Jacob, and then we had Joseph. And what, what did Joseph do? God arranged things, and, and he went to Egypt. And he raised him up to a powerful place. And then all of the family came in. And then they began multiplying and multiplying in Egypt. Until they became a people, a real nation. They were coming. They were growing. And then then all of a sudden, all of the pharaohs that knew Joseph died. And then then the pharaohs began enslaving the people because they didn't know what to do. And then what happened? The people cried out. And they cried out. And they, they cried out to God. And God answered. And he raised up Moses. And Moses led the people out after God had had done all these signs and wonders. It was all at exactly the right time, and it was always the right man. God raised up his own man when he was needed. No, their request was something very different. It was a demand. And they wanted something new, and they wanted something different. They wanted a king like the nations. That was the job description. Now, we know from our study that having a king in and of itself, that wasn't the problem. God had already anticipated that the people would want a king, and he had made provision for that. No, this was more. This was rejecting God as king, and of course, God knew exactly what was in their hearts. He had to explain that to Samuel, because Samuel was very unhappy. He thought he was being rejected as judge over them. And God said, no, this is deeper than that. They are rejecting me as king over them. You see, the request was the outplaying of what has always been in our hearts. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve decided they didn't want God to rule over them, they wanted to rule themselves. We see it over and over We see it, for example, immediately after the Exodus, after Moses had brought the people out and the people 
had the, were being followed by the chariots and God parted the Red Sea and his people went through and lost not one person. And then the waters came back and drowned the Egyptians. And then shortly thereafter, you know what we find the people doing? They're reminiscing about life in Egypt. They say, we sat by meat pots and we ate bread to the full. Would that we had died in Egypt. And then shortly after that, we see it again when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he's too long there. And they're worried and they see the thunderings and the lightnings up on the mountain and Moses doesn't come down. And what do they do? Golden calf. We see it when the people are about ready to enter the promised land and they say, nope, we're not going. The people are too big for us. They, and the scriptures say they would not go and they rebelled against the command of the Lord. We just saw it last week when the Philistines were defeating the Israelites. So what did they do? They went after the Ark of the Covenant and they brought it in to save them from the power of the enemies. It was like the golden calf. They thought it was something that they could control. They could control this God. You see, the problem is the people want a king they can see, a king they can understand, a king who is impressive, a king with all the accoutrements that shouts power, a king that will lead them in battle. One commentator writes this. I love this. He says, God is already their king. He has already fought their battles. But they want a king cut to the size of their sin-defined hopes and their sin-defined fears. They want an alternative to a life of faith and faithfulness. God is too big, he is too mysterious, and he calls him to a life that is too demanding. He calls him to a life lived in the vast and gracious mysteries of God. You see, they wanted to exchange their true glory being God's people, and they wanted to be like the nations. And so the people demand, but what does Samuel do? Samuel prays. He prays to God about the request, and the answer is surprising. God says, obey their voice, but obey their voice. Only solemnly warn them and show them the ways of a king. That is, show them the way of the king, kind of king they are seeking. And what is revealed to the people by Samuel is startling because Samuel says this, it's slavery. That's how he closes his description. He says, and you shall be his slaves. He will take and he will take and he will take and you will serve and you will serve and you will serve. And there will come a day when you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Samuel's words are a reminder for the people to look back. Look back to that time of remembrance. Look back to your life of slavery in Egypt when, the Lord, when you called out to God. And God heard and God remembered and God came and God delivered. But you see what you're doing this time? You are choosing to return to slavery. And there will come a day, there will come a day when God would not answer. How stark is this warning? And the people say, okay, no, no king. No. You know what the people say? They say with more vehemence 
No, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The blindness, what had God been doing? My friends, we still need to hear this and to heed this and to remember this because sin enslaves and it destroys and it blinds us. Sin holds out a promise that seems a promise of of freedom. I will do what I want to do when I want to do it. But in the end, it destroys. God's people were meant to be a light to the nations, but now they will be content to be just like the nations. One commentator writes this. He says, a king for the Israelites meant managed security and living in conformity with the ways of the world. Francis Schaeffer once said, he said, what we want is personal peace and affluence. That's the kind of king we want. It's not so far from the longing of our hearts. And we have to ask ourselves how much of the world has seeped into our hearts. How often do we compromise our calling to be a light to the nations? How often do we seek to live a life that is managed and controlled instead of living in the beautiful, spacious mysteries of the love of God? But take note, because we are about to see that God is not ready to abdicate his throne nor to walk away from his people. In the midst of God's judgments, my friends, a promise is always embedded. A word of hope is always hidden in God's judgment, and it will be until Jesus comes again. Now, because of time, we have to do a quick overview of the next two chapters, but I love these chapters. They're weird, but I love them. It's like being in two places at once. It's like being on earth, and then it's like seeing the curtain of heaven pulled back, and we get to see it from a different perspective. We see man living in the midst of his days, and we see God sovereignly ruling his world. Chapter 9 begins with the description, out of nowhere seemingly, because after discussing these amazing, these huge transitional requests, demands, where we see them demanding a king and they hear of how bad this is going to be for them and they say, no, we want it anyway. Then we come to this and we have this picture of this man living his life in the midst of his days. I mean, where did this come from? And, and we're told a little bit about him. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. His father's name is Kish. He's a wealthy man. And the man we're looking at is Saul. We're given some interesting information about him. He is handsome above all the men of Israel, and he's taller than all the men of Israel. He towers over them. The information tells us that Saul would be someone you couldn't help but notice. It tells you you would like what you see. This one would fit in nicely with the desires of the people, but we're getting ahead of ourselves because first we're given some mundane information, seemingly mundane, And I'm just going to give you a a brief synopsis of what we're told. We're told that Saul is going to go on a journey with his his head servant, and they're going to go because they have been lost donkeys. And his father sends him on this journey, and they've been traveling around, and they've gone to several different places. They haven't found those donkeys. And Saul wants to return home. But at that moment, his servant has a suggestion. He says, let's go find the man of God who is held in honor, 
And all that he says comes true. Let's go ask him where the donkeys are. We find out, of course, that this man is Samuel, but Saul had no idea. We're not even sure Saul knew there was a man of God. And, and even though that Samuel has ruled for decades in Israel. Then we find out that Saul is concerned because you're supposed to take a coin of honor, according to them, to, to a man of God if you ask him for help. Well, the servant finds out that, oh dear, I have a coin. Here it is. And so finally Saul and the servant decide this is a good plan. Let's go do it. On, as they're drawing near to the city where they think the man of God is, they meet some women coming out who are drawing water. For, and they are told, hurry, hurry, enter the city now and you'll find this man of God before he goes up to the high place. It's perfect timing. And so they do so, and they see this man coming toward them, and they go up to him and they say, do you know where the seer is? And of course, it's Samuel, right at the right moment, just as he's ready to go up. Now, let's stop for a minute and think. Saul and his servant have gone on their journey. The sun's been shining down on them. There have been breezes in their face. They've grown weary. They've faced disappointment. They're probably exhausted. They're running out of food. They have laid down and slept, maybe under the stars. It was days like other days. It was real days. It was real moments. But God. We find out that God is working in the midst of those days, and he is ordering and preparing, and he's sovereignly ruling, and my friends, he's loving. Now, Here's what we're told in the passage. We're told that the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he shall save my people from the hands of the Philistines. Listen to this. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Now, let's stop here for a moment because it's really powerful. In Proverbs 19, it says this, Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that shall stand. Is that a comfort to you? You know, sometimes that's a scary thing, but it seems to say that God is always in charge and that we go through our moments and our days but God's hand is over all things. Here is the amazing truth. The people are asking for a king to rule over them, and God's going to give them a king. But he will set the boundaries, and he will give the job description, and he will choose the man, and he will continue to love his people even in the littleness of their hearts. They have God, this God, this sovereign God, and they want a human king instead. A God who oversees all things, God who changes times and seasons, he removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. That's from Samuel 2, 21 and 22. And the people want a king like the nations. Now, in God's unfolding to Samuel about what he is doing, he says over and over this, he says, my people, my people, my people. 
And remember what we just talked about. We said when Samuel unfolded the ways of the king in chapter 8, he said, And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. There would be many times when the people would again cry out to God about the oppression of their various kings. But there would come a day when they would have to choose the king they would serve when we will all have to choose the king we will serve. And the choice that is made on that day will be irrevocable. But that day is not this day. For still God was their king, and they were his people. They were a troublesome people, to be sure. But that's just it. God's compassion and his mercy is beyond our comprehension. The God who the people want to move away from, is a God whose mercy for them is boundless. And the story goes on to unfold the sovereign hand of God in all that happens, and we find Samuel acting as mediator. He interacts with Saul, and he begins now to prepare him to be king. All that follows to the end of our passages today is the preparation and the anointing. And we're not going to go through all of these. We're just going to touch generally on a few highlights. The first thing is the public feast. There are 30 invited guests. We don't know who they are. But there are 30 people up at the high place waiting for a sacrifice. And and Saul bring, I mean, and Samuel brings Saul and he puts him in a place of honor and he gives him the portion of the priest. And he's sitting there. We have no indication that he's introduced to anyone there. 30 people. Here is this man, this handsome man who towers over all of them. He's given the portion of the priest. And there he sits, and no one knows who he is. Then they get up and leave. The next day is when Saul is made king. And interestingly, this is a private anointing. Samuel takes a flask of oil, and he pours it over Saul's head, The oil was a sign of the Lord's anointing him to be prince over his people, but it was also a sign of the Holy Spirit's equipping for the work that God would have him do. Isn't it interesting that the most important part took place in private? Israel has her first king, and no one knows it except God and Samuel and Saul. But one one guesses how much Saul understood It appears that Saul must be further prepared before he is presented to the people. Every moment has been ordered and preordained, but Saul needs to understand. This is an awesome moment, and it requires Saul to begin to grasp the weightiness of what has happened, and it needs for Saul to understand the beautiful and relentless sovereignty of God. The three signs that are given quickly that that you're going to have... Two men are going to come, they're going to say, you're going to go on your way home, um, Saul, and, and you're going to have these three signs. These are prophetic signs. No one could have known. They're told the place and when it's going to happen. So he's going to meet two men. They're going to say, the donkeys are fine. Your father's worried about you, but the donkeys have gone home. Then they're going to meet three men going up to, to Bethel, all carrying things. And one's going to have three loaves of bread. They're going to give you two. And that is a a sign, according to the different um, things that I read, the different commentaries that showed that he was receiving a portion of the sacrifice of the Lord to show the sacredness of kingship. And then finally, Saul is to meet with the prophets. 
And um, what will happen, this will be a spiritual experience. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you. You will be prophesying, and you will be turned into another man. Something's going to happen. You're not going to be like the same man. And we find it later on in the passage where people are saying, Who is Saul? What has happened to Saul? Something has happened to him. And then it comes that after this time, after a period of time, Saul is told to wait until Samuel comes. And then he will be elected, he will be presented publicly. He will be given another heart. Now, there is a, a parenthesis, and there's, um, there's a real argument among, I mean, I read probably four or five commentaries. They all disagree about this garrison of the Philistines. Do you remember reading about that? And some believe that, that when, when Samuel says to Saul, do after, after all of this has come upon him in the Holy Spirit, he says, then you are to do what your heart tells you to do, for the Lord is with you. Many, of, Some of the commentators believe that that was a call for Saul to step out in faith and go and defeat that garrison. Others didn't believe that. I don't know. I don't know. But it's going to come up again in a few weeks, so we'll have to deal with that then, but. Um, Anyway, so here's where we are. All is given, all is prepared, but now what? God has given Saul what he will need for God to work in and through him. And we're going to have to wait and see what that means. What What is the outcome? The people have asked for one thing, a king that will make them like the nations. But God has other things in mind. And God is in charge whether Israel likes it or not. God is in charge whether we like it or not. He has allowed a king, and there will be many, many more to come. David will be an exception, but he too will be a flawed man. But it was necessary for the people and for Saul to be prepared for what kingship really meant. But they were never prepared. We were not prepared for the king God would send in the fullness of time. He would not be a king who took and took and took. He would not be a king who demanded to be served. He would not be a king who took your food for his bread and your grapes for his wine. He would not be a king who would send your sons to defeat the enemy and die for his kingdom. No, not this king, not God's king. God's king would be a king who gave and gave and gave to his own life. He would be a king who was servant of all. He would be a king who would be the bread of heaven come down for you. And he would be the new wine poured out for you. He would not send your sons to defeat the enemy. He would do it alone, that you might reign with him forever. He would not cause you to weep and cry out for a new king he would instead cry out for the loss of his father's face. No, this king will wipe away every tear from your eyes. He's coming again. He will defeat death and sin and Satan. He will make all of our sad things come true. He will make all things new. And do you know how we know that? Because it doesn't depend on us. Because the covenant was made before the foundation of the world that God and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit pl- 
planned this and there was a covenant made and they will not break their promise to one another. There is no doubt that Jesus is coming again. There is no doubt that he is going to take you home. There is no doubt that every tear will be wiped away and all your sadnesses will be gone. And that is the kind of king we have. And we have a great king. Let's pray. Father, uh, how we get lost in these little things where we demand different things than all the blessings that you have for us. Would you teach our hearts to be content? Would you grow us in faith? Would you let us be a people that are a light to the nations? Would you let us love you more and more every day? Would you let us love Jesus? And would you grow us to be a light and a joy and a praying people and a faithful people? In Christ's name, amen.